This is Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Douglas Brinkley. Episode 7 starts after this. You spend a lot of time thinking, talking, writing about culture. What is it? I love what I consider American culture or an even Americana culture. But that began like the early, you know, writers in America, like people like Ralph Waldo Emerson used to ask, what does it mean to be an American? And how do we have a, a distinctive American culture? What differentiates the American from the Europeans? And I think it's come through in a lot of our art forms. I think of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass and the idea of um, that everybody's a poet, that we all carry our own song with you. And, you know, Whitman, to me, epitomizes a new democratic-spirited American culture. Uh, Thomas Hart Benton, the painter who we talked about, does too. Um, and so it's really just about arts, celebrating arts, books, music, realizing that that's some of our great ambassadors of the world. You know, in the 1950s, they would send, Eisenhower would send people like Dizzy Gillespie or Duke Ellington or Benny Goodman and on jazz tours around the world. Uh, people love American jazz. Um, you would have, we would export things like, um, you know, I, I went in my recent book when John Glenn had his capsule, Friendship 7, you know, we'd send our capsule around the world and talk about our space age culture here, like the Space Needle in in Seattle or, you know, the Astrodome when it was built in Texas. Uh, but my days are filled, Brian, with poetry, literature, art, and music. And if I don't have those plus the natural world, uh, I feel empty. So even here with COVID um, going on, I got it quickly, had to go see the David Hockney, um, Vincent Van Gogh landscape painting show at the Houston Museum of Fine Arts. You know, I ne- it was like a, I needed the feed of seeing Hockney's landscapes up close, which I'd never seen before. And so it's like reading in the New York Times, the Arts and Leisure, or reading Week in Review in the Wall Street you know, the weekend section of the Wall Street Journal, just trying to keep track of what artists are doing in our country. And it gives, uh, it, it, it helps spark the spirit of our nation. Which cultural figure have you spent the most time around? Well, I got to know some writers that I knew of my youth pretty well. I got to know the novelist Kurt Vonnegut well. Um, in How? I, um, I used to, I had Kurt, was very interested in World War II, and I had him come to New Orleans to speak, and I happened to have read his his novels and we got to talk to him about them, and his wife, Jill, was a photographer, and she actually took a lot of photos of the Magic Bus, and we would, or my students would meet with Vonnegut in New York. I have, Jill took a lot of photos of Kurt and I in New York City together out on Cape Cod, he was from Indianapolis, and there's a little museum there. Last year, I went with Solomon Rushdie, and I did a program together on honoring the writings of Kurt Vonnegut. What I admired about, and I written about Kurt Vonnegut. I did a major Rolling Stone profile of him, but I, uh, his imagination is phenomenal, uh, and he was a science fiction writer, and then he would write these books after books imagining um, the world. A lot of them are dystopian novels, but I always makes me laugh, Kurt Vonnegut. There's not one of his books that I don't get an out 
out-and-out chuckle from. So I think he was one of our really important writers that's going to last for a long time. How did that happen to somebody from Indianapolis? He got drafted in World War II, and he was in Dresden uh, and got captured as a POW by the Nazis. And when the British did the firebombing of Dresden and flattened the city, Vonnegut, who they kept in a meat storage locker as an American POW during the bombing, his job was to come out with other American GIs and put dead charred bodies into wheelbarrows and bury them in mass graves with the German officers pointing guns at them. So he had to put thousands and thousands of corpses uh, that still had the smell. You know, they've been there a couple of days, an unforgettable smell, and put them into mass graves. And so I got to know not only Kurt, but some of his buddies from World War II that were part of Dresden. And, gee, I mean, you want to see what turns somebody into a pacifist. I mean, you, you, you deal with what he had to deal with there in Dresden, meaning just that much death. Uh, and he would talk about it and cry, um, you know. And I think at that point he felt that life's absurd. Know that everything is absurd and was very worried about what humans are doing to, to other human beings, the Holocaust, you know, uh, Cambodia in the 70s. I mean, he so he became kind of a human rights watchdog, but his books are s- s- just pure satire and they're a lot of fun to read. And what do they talk about? Um, well, you know, brec- some they on all different topics. Um, Breakfast of Champions, he would kind of looking at um, how like somebody like my, how the Midwest throws arts festivals, uh, which was very funny, what is considered art in the Midwest, but uh, he deals with these characters from everyday American life, but uh, he, he created a character, Kilgore Trout, that cross-circulates through a lot of his novels, wrote a book about Galapagos, uh, time machines, um, p- player piano, he had a suspicion of technology. Um, which I always feel is healthy. Uh, Aldous Huxley um, wrote a book, Doors of Perception, and, and Huxley used to say people were now blessing themselves instead of the cross with the T for the Model T. Uh, Vonnegut picks up on that and basically thinks we've become addicted to our new technologies, and are we sure this isn't going to be doomsday for Earth? And he had such a great scientific background. He was a just a genius, Kurt Vonnegut, that he brought real science into his satires. And so I look at things, who's a durable? Like I think 100 years from now, people will be reading Kurt Vonnegut 500 years from now. So it was an honor to get to know him. Did you read him before you met him? I did. I read Slaughterhouse when I was a kid. It's sort of mandatory in a lot of high schools. Um, like Catcher in the Rye or, or you know, uh, used to be The Good Earth of Pearl Buck or something, yeah. a Steinbeck, Cannery Row. Uh, you couldn't, you know, but he wrote so many. I One thing I, I once asked Kurt, I said, are you doing your, what's your next book? Like you would ask me. And he looked at me with this sad face and said, do I have to do another? Haven't I done enough? Do you really think everybody's read all of what I've ever done, but they always want to know what my next one is? And, uh, you know, it made me feel a little foolish for a minute, but I think about I, I hesitate some when I ask people, what are you writing now? Because, you know, if I hadn't read some of their other books. Um, but he, 
he was very worried about climate change. Um, uh, he also, though, you couldn't put him in a right-left box. He got involved with the issue of how one dies. Uh, with, that you know, are you if you're ready to go? Is there a way to have uh, you know? Do you have to stay with tubes in a hospital and not have memory to stay alive, or is there a way to die with more dignity um, uh, on your clock, not somebody else's? Uh, so he 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 tapped a lot of topics that are kind of taboo and would make you rethink them, um, and was just a sweet person. What is your reaction when you've run into somebody that de- never reads? It, I, it's hard for me. Can you talk to them? Oh, yeah. I mean, I do. And, um, you know, I, as you know, I hang out all my life and I can go to like Waffle Houses and work on my books. And there's something nice about people not carrying some. But to me, getting into a conversation with somebody about books is, is about as exciting as it gets. And there's certain writers that just, um, you know, mean a lot to me. I probably know more about them than I should. I had the strange, um, I started with Jack London when I was young, but I started reading like Call of the Wild White Fang, but then I would read everything Jack London did. And I then did that with writer like Willa Cather. And then I did it with Kurt Vonnegut. And I wouldn't just read one or two. I wanted to see their whole body of, of work. And I, I loved American writers, but I also liked a lot of Russian writers. I loved Dostoevsky and Tolstoy growing up when I was young. But I'm kind of, um, I pull for the American artist, for the American writers. I, I think we, you know, Henry David Thoreau's my favorite and Herman Melville, um, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou. You know, these are all people I deeply where, admire. Where do you get the time? I read every day. All that's all I do, and it informs my history books. So I'm rewriting *Silent Spring Revolution* on Rachel Carson. So I'm trying to figure out what was it like in the 1950s uh, when we had the Trinity Explosion in New Mexico, then Hiroshima, Nagasaki. You have atomic fallout. We're testing weapons in Nevada. Uh, eventually, we find out people get sick. We're spraying DDT. And McCarthyism's going on. And then there's some people that are saying this is the greatest prosperity ever in the 50s. And then there are people saying we are destroying the planet at a rapid rate. Usually it's the novelists who come up with that, the destruction narrative ones. You know, the, uh, I read a, a book, for example, that's not that well known, that's really good, called Earth Abides by George R. Stewart. And he deals with what happens when a strange virus takes over and kills everybody except a few people. And he was in the novel as a uh, University of California, Berkeley um, forester, science guy, and he survives. But he can't figure out why he survived and why this person survived. And yet he's, so, he's science, so he drives around America trying to figure out why this particular um, virus saved few. What c- characteristics did we have the same? Well, I mean, look at COVID now. You know, I read Earth Abides. It does, it, if you read it 20 years ago, it seems a little bizarro. And then you read it in the COVID climate, and it's like, you know, it's all exaggerated. It gets a lot wrong. But he's making you think about pandemics. I 
interviewed Bill Clinton not long ago, and Clinton told me that all he did as president was read these fiction books by Tom Clancy or, um, you know, um, some of these other kinds of, um, you know, Michael um, Crichton and these sorts of writers who are thinking out of the box so much that sometimes they're, they're not bureaucrats, so they're thinking about, you know, what could happen. Clancy predicted a lot of different things. So having some novels and fiction from interesting writers in your life, I find it very important. The author of <clears throat> Lady Chatterley, Chatterley's Lover, yeah. <clears throat> you were in an Oldsmobile, I think, and you drove out to D.H. Lawrence. Yeah. Country. Um, when was that? Why was that? Uh, D.H. Lawrence is, <clears throat> was p- part of Mabel Dodge's community out in um, Santa Fe, but Taos. And um, it, I always was amazed that uh, this great British writer would end up in New Mexico, and he fell in love with the landscape up there. And if you climb a mountain there, he wanted his ashes not scattered, but they're kind of, it's like a little adobe hut that his ashes are in the hut, so you go and sit in it, and you're surrounded by D.H. Lawrence. And the site looks out over the horizon of New Mexico. Like over, he chose a vista point that's just stunning, you know. And um, I like D.H. Lawrence a lot. I mean, he's not one of my favorite writers, but he wrote some essays about American literature that are really, really interesting about other writers. And uh, Lady Chatterley's lover... Uh, and others were, broke a lot of their taboos of the day. You know, they were, you were smashing in some ways the polite Victorian novels with something that had a more, you know, modern sensibility. Why are people celebrated who break down previous mores? Always. Why? Um, that's a great <clears throat> question. People are always looking for the new, new thing. Um, look at it in the world of just say technology now. Everybody, every minute, it's a new app, a new this, a new that, an industry. Henry Ford, when I wrote about him, said that the business world is filled of people who didn't recognize the time of change uh, and kept doing the same old thing. Uh, if you're not changing, you can get stuck a little bit. And I tend to go back to the older novels, particularly as I go, I'm more of a narrative historian. I mean, so the writer I really love and defend now, where nobody's defending, is the great Thomas Wolfe of North Carolina, uh, because he wrote this beautiful, romantic, rapturous prose that's really out of date right now. But I defend Wolfe because he just had so much raw talent and wrote about the landscape of America so well. But you're right, just go to a, a wing of a modern art museum in America and you'll see everybody's trying to do something that somebody didn't do, like break, create a new president for yourself. Otherwise, you're imitating. And, um, but things become retro. Things come back. Uh, i have amazed how many college students are starting to get record albums again. Vinyl. Yeah, they're getting vinyl. <clears throat> I can't. I mean, I, I thought it was a few and a trend, but it's now become on college campuses really in where you do a record vinyl party and they play the vinyl of old. Right when you thought vinyl was gone forever, it finds audience. So, um, but yeah, I do think breaking down uh, in barriers has become a big part of the let, 20th century let me, life. Let me inject my own observation on yeah. something and see what you think. I, I've been around long enough I can remember this. The movies when I was 
first going to movies have progressed through the years. And this is what I see. Men now routinely in the movies are seen standing at a urinal. It's even gone so far women sitting on a commode. The language has gone from no language to the F word every three and a half seconds. It's almost like it's built in. Why is that happening, and what benefit are we getting out of that? I would not consider that great art, That's that kind of thing, unless it's done in some way in a particular uh, film. It's just uh, prof- grim prof- profiteering on our base well, Why do we selves. like that? I don't. Um, but I think, I guess people, you know, that's, you know, the you learn that the, using the F word is very tricky. Very few people have ever been able to use it effectively. So I ban it from my language. I don't use it, period. I don't let my kids use it, and I don't like it in the movies. Can somebody use it in a way that's effective in a scene? Yes. But I agree with you. This, the, 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 I've given up on pop culture's, uh, the low, how low the road has gotten on just um, edgy for edgy's sake, um, gratuitous violence of, of a, a, a you know grotesque way. What I liked edgy is when satire can make us see ourselves in a different way, and that's not what the kind of movies you're talking about or is doing. Douglas Brinkley is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.